0: About 15 years ago, um, a couple that, if you've been around Christendom for very long, then you know the name Josh McDowell. And Josh and his wife, Dottie, wrote a book called The Topsy-Turvy Kingdom. This is the book, and it is a great story, children's book, very young children's book, as you can tell by the illustration immediately on the outside, but it's the story of a young prince um, who grows up in this wonderful kingdom, and then his dad is called away to war, and something happens um, as as he leaves the kingdom. Something goes wrong, and everything that was right about the kingdom and wonderful gets turned upside down, and wrong becomes right. And I couldn't help but thinking what a perfect illustration for what we're doing here today. As a matter of fact, what, what we know already, what we said from the very beginning in introducing Matthew is Jesus did not meet any. Of Israel's expectations for their coming and future king. No, no, not only did he not meet the expectations, he literally turned their world upside down, topsy-turvy for sure. And because I think it's such a great book, I have a little giveaway today. I feel like Oprah. So today, um, if you will reach under your chair, hidden in this room are three crowns because this is talking about a kingdom. So if you've got your crown under a chair and if no one comes up with them, then go to the chair next to you because they're in here somewhere. So there are three three crowns under the chairs. Who's got them? Oh, I see one. I see one back there. Oh, I see one over here. Okay, there's one more. Where's the third one? Third crown. Aha, uh-huh, right there. Okay, so um, here's the deal. If you are a, the holder of a crown, I hope you have little children. Um, and you will be receiving a copy of the Topsy-Turvy Kingdom, but... It's not going to be a brand new copy because as I went to buy it, I found this book is now out of print. It's a great book. And so I had to start doing some digging, but I have ordered three copies that I found on the Internet. And um, I don't have possession of them yet. So hold your crown, bring it back next week and maybe the week after to Martha's Table. And when you do, as soon as I get those copies, then you will get a copy of the Topsy-Turvy Kingdom. So... All right, literally, then we're going to talk about how Jesus literally in this these two uh chapters, eleven and twelve, how he has literally turned the world as as a typical Jewish person would know it upside down, and um I think, as a matter of fact, what as I looked at these two chapters and went to study, I said, really what just jumped out at me were the reactions of people to Jesus and what he was doing. And so we're going to look at jesus not the reactions to him, but his reaction back to others. And of course, I know you're not shocked, but we're going to look at three things, three reactions of Jesus to those around him. The first is dealing with doubt, Jesus dealing with doubt. And that's, of course, the doubt of John the Baptist. And we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about... um, Jesus disputing his detractors. And really, the bulk of our passage... starts off in verse 20 of chapter 11 and it runs all the way to 42 and 12. We see various snippets of folks opposing Jesus in various and sundry ways. And we're going to talk about five ways specifically that I found. We're going to look at those. And then the last one that we're going to close with is defining disciples. And that's the last thing Jesus does is he defines who is his true disciple. So the first is dealing with doubt in those first 19 verses of chapter 11. Open your Bible with me to Matthew 11, if you would, and let's look at that. And it's interesting, we come off this mountaintop experience um, from last week that Tricia led us so beautifully through, where we see the, the, that Jesus has trained his disciples up, he sent them out. They, not only is he doing miracles, but they too have the power of miracles in their hands, and all these things are happening. And yet, where do we open today? We end on that mountaintop to find Jesus' faithful servant teetering on the brink of, di- of doubt and defeat. And that's John the Baptist, the forerunner that God had sent. And we find this man in a bad place, you would say. Uh, And I'm so thankful that God has put this little tiny these few verses in here, because it gives us really a footprint of what to do with our own doubt by looking at what happened here with John. And so I I thought three things about this little snippet. And the first is that evidence doesn't equal belief. Because I love Jen Haney. A week ago, Wednesday, Jen Haney wrote The Journey, and she said, you know, we would think of all people, John would never doubt that Jesus was the Christ. And yet he does. And why is that? And so um, if we look at John and his life, we would think John had all the evidence he needed to believe, didn't he? And you, you had a chance to go over this question. It was your first question in your lesson today, so I'm sure your group talked about it. But I want to tell you some of the things that I tried to look back and go, okay, what does John know that should have assured him Jesus is who he said he is. So I went back to John's life, and let's just start. Here's some evidence that I came up with. Number one, he had firsthand knowledge of Jesus, and I mean firsthand, because you see, John was Jesus' cousin. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, verses 36 to 56, what you find is the amazing, miraculous story. Um, Before either of these young men came to life um, outside the womb, they came to know each other. Inside the womb. You see, Jesus' mother, Mary, when she found out she was pregnant, she went straight to her cousin's house, Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth, we're told, was... Be, uh, was actually experiencing or had experienced a miraculous... That sounded kind of twangy. She had experienced a miraculous conception herself. You see, she was advanced in age, had been barren, not able to bear children, and actually was beyond childbearing age, probably a postmenopausal woman, and yet she had become pregnant with the forerunner of Christ. And when Mary stepped into her house in Luke, you see that John within her womb leaps at the sound of Mary's voice. And then Elizabeth gives this tribute to Mary that is prophetic and beautiful. And Mary responds, and there's this beautiful exchange between these cousins. And if you go on and read that account, you find that Mary stayed with her cousin for three months of her pregnancy. She kind of harbored herself in Elizabeth's house. Now, don't you know these two cousins shared all kinds of things in those three months? Just can you believe it? I mean, what is going on? I mean, both of them experiencing these things that were God-ordained, God-breathed within them. And I just have to believe somewhere as these two boys then, six months ap- you know, began to grow up, I have to believe some of those stories were told to them. John knew Jesus firsthand and then if that didn't do it if that didn't seal the deal John was the one who baptized Jesus and we know we already studied that and we know what happened John saw the heaven opened up he saw a dove come down and by golly he heard a voice and it wasn't just any voice it was God's voice pretty compelling evidence wouldn't you say That would tell John, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Okay, and yet circumstances had stormed their way into John's life. John, this fiery preacher who lived in the wilderness, finds himself confined in a dank, dirty, dusty, nasty prison. Why? Because he had done what God sent him to do. He confronted Herod for marrying his brother's wife. And What did it get him? Landed in prison. That's where he was. And so he had done what God asked him to do. He asked him to announce that his kingdom was coming. Well, that's what John had done. He'd announced it all right. And he said, hey, not only is it coming, but the true king, he's on his way. Herod's not the true king. He made sure everybody around him knew it. God's going to replace him. And he was pretty sure, I think all the way up to this point in his life, that he was going to replace him with Jesus. And yet, now he is sitting in prison, and he's hearing from his disciples these things that Jesus is doing. Pretty amazing things, things, pretty miraculous things, but not at all the things he thought Jesus would do. You see, he expected Jesus to be, he thought Jesus was... Elijah to come. He didn't realize he was Elijah. He thought Jesus was it. So he thought Jesus was going to sweep through Israel with fire and brimstone, and he was going to be the one to right all the wrongs, confront Herod, topple the throne, become the king, and release him. I mean, come on. That's probably in his mind sitting there. He's thinking this was how it should play it out. And yet, the reports that were coming back to him, what were they? Oh, Jesus, he's out partying with tax collectors and sinners, and and he's doing all these things that a respectable rabbi would never be caught doing. So, doubt began to creep in. Are you who you said you were, who I think you are? And yet, don't we do the same thing today in our lives You can know something to be true in your head. You can know it in your head, and yet your heart can deceive you. The pressures of the day, whether they're relational, financial, spiritual, they can cause you to question God. And that takes us really to the third point under here, and I think that is we learn from John that our doubt should drive us right back to the source. So no matter what John's doubts were, he knew where to take them. And he... um, sent his disciples to Jesus to say, you go ask him. Here's what I want you to ask him. And how does Jesus respond? But with tact and with tenderness as we would expect him to. And what does he do but reminds John of the prophecy? What you know is true. It is said, this will happen and that will happen and it is happening. And that's a great word for all of us as friends. When we are Dealing with friends that are going through great doubt and great trial, what a great thing to take them back to the truth of Scripture and go, You know what God's Word stands on. This is what you can bank your life on when everything else around you seems to be falling away. That's what Jesus did. He went on then and he praised John for many things. He said, Number one, you're not a crowd pleaser. You never, you never. Um, did anything to please those around you. You didn't vacillate with every change in the wind. He compares them to this reed. And he says, nor were you like the kings, like Herod, who lords it over people in all of his finery in his palace and all of his fine, soft clothing. You're not doing that either. You weren't either one. You didn't lord it, nor did you bow down to the crowd. And yet, even with all this praise that he heaps on John, he goes on to say, And to let the people know that John's work, the time for John's work, had come to an end. And it literally would. You see, remember that in chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus began announcing the presence of the kingdom of God and saying that it had come at precisely the time that John had been thrown into prison. So Jesus was telling his followers, John's work has been wound up. Completed, finished, not because he was a failure, but because he was a success. And we know how John's story ends. We're going to read it. We're going to get there later. He's beheaded after a Bacchus ruckus party. And sitting here today, I just couldn't help but think, you know, just like John's story, I think there are many situations today that cause us to doubt God. And I think the loss of a loved one has to be among the highest, the most difficult, losing a spouse or a child in the prime of life, how can this be God's plan? Who wouldn't begin to doubt when you are faced with that type of loss? That's why I love the stories of hope and healing that are all around us. We have them sitting in this room. I love that Julie Nicholson, one of our members, started a ministry called Grief Share. It is specifically, expressly for the purpose of walking those through um, dealing with loss and the doubt that ensures. And it's, it's um, had a one full great term, and it's on its second, and some great, amazing things are happening in the lives of people who need to be reminded of God's promise that it's sure, that it's true, that a mistake was not made. Psalm 32 through 5, Oh, Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. O oh Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his, praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping, it may tarry for the night, but joy rejoicing, it comes in the morning. I don't know what it is you're in doubt about today. But I do know that when you're in doubt, seek God out. It's really simple. And then when he acts on your behalf, build a memorial to it. Journal it. Uh, I'm trying to get better about this myself, about journaling what God is doing so that I don't forget, so that when I am down, when I am weak, I can go back and remember. I love Joshua 4, 5 through 7. It actually uh, here Joshua was was actually commanding the Israelites to do this. Take up each of you a stone on his shoulder that this may be a sign among you. He was having them build a literal memorial that when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? You can tell them. That's what we should be doing. We should be memorializing things in our life, whether it's in a journal, through through photos. I don't know how you memorialize in your home, but find a way so that you can go back and tell the generations to come what God has done for you. And that takes us to the distractors that Jesus would encounter. And they begin coming with an onslaught. You see, Jesus is pressured now on all sides. His own followers don't really understand who he is or what he's doing. People are after him all the time to heal him, to cast out demons. Um, And at the same time, he's got opposition from the learned, from the religious all around him, from the leaders of his people. They begin opposing, opposing at every turn, opposing what he's doing. So what can we learn from what we see starting here in um, verse 21? First lesson I think that we learn is you just can't please all the people all the time. Societies all over the world warn children about certain types of people. So imagine being the daddy on the front porch of your home, and you step out your front door to see a bright red sports car wheeling past, speeding past tires squealing, and as it slows down, you catch a glimpse of the driver inside. Handsome, young, long-haired guy, aviator glasses, rock music blaring, and as he peels on down the street, the daddy sees the back of the bumper on the car, and it says, I'm the one your mother warned you about. Now, there's the picture, but in the place of the daddy put the, the nation of Israel They are the daddy on the porch. And yeah, they'd been warned about the rebellious son to come. And so now, here comes Jesus saying he's the Messiah. And this is what I think the typical Jew of the day would say. Ah, that Jesus, yeah, he's a guzzler, a boozer, a glutton, a drunkard. He likes to party, have fun. He's got food and drink all the time. He must be the one our mother warned us about. I think that's what they were thinking. They, they weren't at all thinking, Messiah, they're trying to figure this guy out. He's having a party. How frustrating that must have been for Jesus. So he contrasts himself. He's like, you guys are never happy. You had John, the aesthetic one, John, the one who hearkened to the prophets of old, who dressed in bizarre clothing, ate locusts, bizarre things, and hightailed it out into the wilderness, and you were said he had a demon in him, and so you didn't like him, so you got him on one hand, and then you got me on the other. And what am I here to do? I'm here to celebrate God's love and forgiveness and generosity for, uh, for all of us. I'm here to celebrate the kingdom has come. And you say, I'm a rebel and a son who won't behave. You just can't please all the people all the time. So quit trying and just respond to the voice of one. I think that's the first thing we learn. And the second thing we learn is that education isn't always about the classroom. You see, wisdom in the Jewish world was the highest, one of the highest virtues for the Jew of the day. The more you devoted yourself to learning the law and the Mishnah and the thousands of little details that went along with it, because they had not the Ten Commandment law, they had done every little dot and tittle and iteration of additional law to the law and the more you learned it and sat in a room and then surely the wiser you would become and ultimately then you would be the one who would know God, right? And yet for the average Jew that made that kind of wisdom absolutely unattainable. You see, that would mean that you would have had to be trained in literature and language and that you would have to have time set aside to sit and ponder these very weighty things that we all must struggle with in life, right? And the average Jew just didn't have that kind of time. And so what does Jesus do with all that intellectualism? Again, Boy, is that not a word for us today. What does he do with it? He turns it literally upside down. And he says, no, no, you don't need all that intellectualism to know God. You just need to be like this little child right here. And he brings a child in front of him. What? Are you kidding? You've got to be kidding me. I and mean, turns it upside down on him. And then he goes on to say, to get to know your father, you don't need to study books. You just need to do three things. You need to, number one, live in his presence, number two, listen to his voice, and number three, learn by imitating him. Just do what he does. It's so simple. Even a little child can do it. And so he confounded all that the Pharisees had been saying and doing. There are many, many lists of do's and don'ts and all their additional laws upon laws that were weighing the people down. He said, Psst, You just got to be like this little kid right here who can't even read or write yet. Just be like him. Listen to your daddy. Learn from him. It's really, very simple. Jesus said, come to me and take from me. It's a deep experience. He's going to give you everything you need, not weigh you further down. And then the third thing I think we learn here in this interchange starting in chapter 12 is that people matter more than things. The challenge... Now, from the learned, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, turns to what Jesus and his disciples are doing on the Sabbath. And Jesus, again, turns it around. And he points out that what they really need to look at is what the Sabbath has become, not what law they're breaking on it, but let's look at what it's become. It's become a powerful system, strictly enforced by those who want to observe it Um, in its little iterations, again, rather than, I mean, it's become, again, it's become this thing rather than what its original intention was to begin with. And he goes back and says, "What, what was the Sabbath for? God created the Sabbath to ensure that his love for his people wouldn't be interrupted by overachievers who were never willing to rest. People who wanted to work seven days a week and they had them back then just like they do today. Don't you feel right at home? So the same thing happened. God knew it from the beginning. He knew we would never cease, want to never cease from our labor. He knew there would be slave drivers among us who would say, oh no, I got to get this done. I got to get that done. And so he had said, you need to rest. Why? Because I love you. I want to restore you. That's the purpose. So if the law is If the law was getting in the way of loving people, and that's why he went through the whole illustration that he did, because clearly the law was in the way of love of people, then the law is wrong. That's what he's trying to say here. People matter more than things. And then he takes us to a house divided, we'll fall. We all know this. We've heard this in songs and um, poems. And this is nothing new to us either. And it certainly wasn't new to them. When you see something that goes way beyond what a normal person should be able to do, normal capabilities, you begin to ask some questions in your head. Well, that's exactly what the Jews were doing. Because you see, Jesus was doing some things that went way beyond capabilities of a normal person guy or gal, of the day. As a matter of fact, he was going way beyond even what the Jewish exorcists were doing of the day. He was able to do things and uh, have power over things that even they were not able to do. And so, it's interesting that... um, We had just finished in the last chapter studying miracles and looking at how Jesus did those and and those that he empowered to do those. And what's interesting is we we realized very quickly that the miracles happening weren't happening by wizardry. It wasn't a sleight of hand. It wasn't the the power of perfection. If I just work hours and hours on it, I'm going to be able to perfect this little trick every time. It wasn't even that. There was power at work, and everybody that saw it knew it. The question is... Where does the power come from? Ah, you see, that's it. They thought they knew. Yeah, we know. We know where that power comes from. Now, why would they go to Satan? Why would they immediately think this rabbi, this teacher, they all agreed he was a teacher of the law, and they had teachers among them, but why would they immediately put him in cahoots with Satan? Because, you see, the alternative to him being in cahoots of Satan was that all the other things he was doing, and let's just list them out here, welcoming outcasts, partying with tax collectors and non-believers announcing that the kingdom belongs to children refusing to endorse national liberation from the roman rule that all of that was god-ordained that's what it would mean that this is what god intended it to be are you kidding me that's not how it's supposed to be so jesus shows them how illogical their thinking is very simply again i said he must have been like a great philosophy teacher he would just say okay now wait a minute a plus B doesn't equal C in your little equation. It's just not adding up. Just think logically here for a moment, folks. If Satan wanted control over people, then he would never have given me, this is Jesus speaking, the power to set lots of them free. It doesn't make sense. And that takes me to the last point, the truth can be blinding, because that's really what it was for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all of them. Jesus' opponents, they just can't believe what he's saying. And so they say another time, well, give us a clue. And that just couldn't, just um, had me thinking about Sherlock Holmes because I just recently saw the Sherlock Holmes movie. And I, we all know what the, the great mark of a, of a really good detective is. A really great detective is someone who can spot one or two relevant clues that all of the rest of us miss. We just, we never even saw it. We didn't see it. And yet, that's what a detective does. And and that is Jesus, in this sense, responding to them, begging for a clue. Not only does he not give them a clue, but he goes on then to compare them to the pagans of old. And they really hated this, you see. He uses Jonah preaching to the Ninevites, and then the Queen of Sheba, who came from Arabia, to show that even non-believing folks could see God at work and respond to it. And here, you believe God, you say you are of God, and you see the thing before you and you can't believe? Wow, even the pagans who know nothing of God see a few things before them and immediately respond. It's so easy, and yet what a slap in the face to the religious leaders of the day. You see, the Pharisees' speech and the petty things that they began to say about Jesus... Well, just like my heart, they were showing what really was in, in their heart of hearts. Luke 6.45 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Wow, I better watch what comes out from between my lips. It's just amazing to me what taking a stand for something can do. It brings opposition. Let's just back up a few days to the Super Bowl. Let's take the Tim Tebow commercial, for example, just a tiny little thing, and yet before it even aired, could you believe it? Did you get on the blogs and read any of what was being said? They didn't even know what it was going to be, and yet there was all this um, hype and surmising and and unbelievable, because I read them, and I couldn't believe what was being said, and I don't think it really lived up to all that they thought it was, because you see, they weren't Tim and his mom weren't they weren't against something. They didn't come out against something. They were for something. That's all they were trying to do, is say, we're for something, we're for life. That's what they were saying, and yet the bloggers went crazy. And why would we be surprised by that? Because what we know is if we take a stand for Christ, for something, then we, just like Jesus, will have detractors. In John 15, 18 to 21, this is what Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of this world, and if you know Jesus Christ sitting in this room, he is talking to you, because I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So, wherever it is that you're encountering opposition in your life today, maybe it's at your place of employment, maybe it's with your spouse or your neighbors, you got to know that God is using whatever it is to refine you. And be encouraged from this story. Just take a stand and rest assured that if God is for us, who? Can be against us, Romans 8 31. And that takes us to the very last thing I think Jesus does in these last few verses from 43 to 50. He defines his disciples. And it's again, it's just so simple. He wants to make it something that even a child will understand. Have you ever had somebody in your family brush you aside when you're trying to rescue them from trouble? I think that's what's happening here. I think his family came and not only did they want to talk to him, they kind of sensed that there was some stuff going down that wasn't good, and they were wanting to kind of pull him out, pull him away from that. And yet, Jesus turns away from his family. He's not discounting his family. I'm so glad Bobby Rodriguez, if you haven't read his journey, he talks a lot about it, and I'm so glad he says, you know, that's that's not at all what he's trying to do. But he is redefining who family is and what it looks like. He was not discarding family. He's enlarging family. That's what he's doing. There's an old saying that blood is thicker than water, and it's talking about families. In other words, saying you should stand up for your family. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is that blood has nothing to do with it. No, blood's not thicker than water. Blood, as a matter of fact, doesn't have anything to do with it. And the Jews of the day really needed to know that. There's another little old saying that used to be said. People would say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I was born in the United States of America. I'm I'm a Christian. I go to church. And I heard someone give an illustration when they were doing evangelism explosion in the illustration was well you know that's interesting that you say that but going to church doesn't make you a christian any more than sitting in the garage makes you a car it's exactly what jesus is saying and he's saying the same thing to the jews of the day being born a jew doesn't make you in the family of god the game has changed and the family's going to look different and blood no longer is going to define it that's what he's telling them it's a great word for us today Again, to be reminded who family is. Our immediate, which again, he's not saying don't care for him. All you got to do is go to the cross. And you see how tenderly Jesus wanted to make provision for his mother at the cross. He cared very deeply for his family. That is not what we're saying. We look at many other passages that command us and compel us to care for our family. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not discarding. He's enlarging family. This really came um, to rest in my house very much a few years ago when I studied the book of Luke. Because you see, um, my family and I started a tradition. My husband and I, Kyle and I, the first year we got married, we started a tradition. And we had an open house at Christmas. And we just used it as a time to invite family and friends in. And we said we would use the platform to talk about Christ, too which we do and have done in various forms, but it really was for family and friends, and that's mostly who the crowd was till I studied the book of Luke. And there's a passage I'm going to read to you in just a minute, and it began to challenge me about my guest list. Hmm. Maybe it needs to look a little different. Listen to this, Luke 14, 12 to 14. So when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your kinsmen or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you now again you got to put that story in context and what jesus was saying same point he was making in luke he was saying there are those outside of our immediate jewish family that are poor Lame, not literally, physically, but metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking. And that was a challenge because you see, I don't really know very many, Angela, I know you, but I don't really know very many other blind people. I really don't know anybody that would be lame, as I would specify it, or maimed necessarily, not literally, but maybe metaphorically, maybe spiritually. I just know a lot of people I brush up against in life that may not know Jesus at all. That's who I'm being compelled to enlarge to. So who is it that I do business with? Who is it that I um, brush up against? The parents of my kids' friends. Who I play soccer with. Who I work out with that really, quite frankly, gets under my skin and on my very last nerve. And maybe that guy that is always such a jerk in the gym, maybe he's the one that needs to be the very one I invite to the next Christmas party or dinner that I'm giving. You see, I think that's the challenge. Whoever it is on the fringe of your sphere, that's who your family is. That's who Christ is, com- is compelling us to reach out to. Reach out and bring them into the family. So I don't know who it is for you. Who's coming to your party the next one you give? And are you living your life every day in a way that literally turns your world upside down? That's what this whole passage is commanding us to do. Acts 17.6 is a great picture. You see... Christ's disciples, after he had left and gone away and given them the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul and his followers began to turn their world in Corinth upside down. And this is what the world said about them. These men, and I said women, who who have turned the world upside down, yeah, they've come here also. And they were concerned that these guys that where there's always Always something going on with these guys. There were um, all kinds of people being drawn, and then yet there were also those that were almost in rebellion at what Paul and his folks did. Because you see, they just took the truth of the gospel. As simple as it was, they took it, and it stirred things up. It would become just like a little hornet's nest. Why? Because they were just simply trying to obey what the good book said. They were just trying to talk the talk that the good book said, and they turned the world upside down. Let's today purpose in our life to be women that begin in our own little sphere, in our own little world, to turn it upside down. Pray with me. Father, I just thank you that you've given us this word and that um, I like things safe very often, but you've challenged us. Uh, You turned the world upside down, and I just pray that you give us the boldness and the power to walk from here, and be willing to turn our world upside down. In your name, amen.